0: Welcome to The Power to Create Yourself with Ross Rameen. If you or someone you are close to is dealing with addiction, there are so many programs out there that can help you. But how do you gauge which ones are going to work the best for you? Some are expensive, Some deal with some of the issues, but don't get to the heart of the matter. Others treat the problem at a basic level, but don't determine ultimate success. Join us now for an hour that sets out to be truly groundbreaking, and will help you discover how to find the best program for your addiction problem. Now, here is Ross Rameen.
1: Hey, welcome to the show, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We're coming to you from the Rebos Treatment Center here in Los Angeles, California. Thanks so much for joining us today, I really appreciate it. Um, Today I am beyond thrilled because I have one of my favorite people ever um, in front of me right now here at the treatment center. His name is John Joseph and he is one of our um, clinicians here, um, works with the clients with intakes, he's helped them with case management issues. John has a story that is second to none, and he's arguably one of the most inspirational people I've ever met in my life. John, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, thank you, Ross, for having me. I know
1: you don't believe it, and you always kind of look at me kooky when I say stuff like that. <laughs> but you are literally—you—you've just—I remember the day that we met, and I've just seen—you're just. I don't know. You're a different level than most. Thank I mean, you, you really are, dude. I
2: appreciate that. You really I appreciate are. That. I mean that from the
1: bottom of my heart. And you have <laughs> people all over the world that are listening to this right now that can uh, just—that's admitted to them. So I've got—I've got a man crush on you, John. <laughs> I think you're a total wow. stud.
2: <laughs> wow. Appreciate it, man. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. It's been a journey knowing you and working with you, man. And just doing our best to save lives.
1: John, you touch clients differently than others. You do. It's just you—you—you you, you work harder than any person I've ever met. You really do. You just you bust your butt. You go through the same trials and tribulations that just anybody does, but you you're just you're just different. You are. Mm-hmm. Wow. I yeah. mean, you're just different. You you don't and I say that in the nicest way possible with the utmost respect. I think you know that. I love hearing about your family. I love hearing about your kids. I love hearing about, you know, your side business ventures that you're doing. I absolutely love watching it. But when I watch you talk to clients, either get getting them pumped up or basically um, de-escalating them in a sense, you have a gift.
2: Wow. Well, yeah. I think it's just the grace of God, man. I, I really care about human beings. I care about people. And once upon a time in my addiction, I didn't. I only cared about me. And something happened and something changed. And um, I care about humans, every human being. I care about the man asking for change outside of 7-Eleven just as much as I care about my mom. And, um, and that's where... It, where, where it where begins and ends for me. How do you, how years how how many years you've been sober now? A little over twenty years now. <laughs> All the grace of God, man. <laughs> twenty years. Yeah, you've been sober over twenty years. Yep. Woke up in jail one day and super intoxicated, and that's what happened. That's what happened for you, jail. That's where it happened, man. Woke up in jail, just drunk, and didn't know how I got there, and was going to be there a lot longer than I wanted to be. Yeah. Yeah.
1: What went down that day? What what went down the day that like you went, that you woke up, you found out that you're going to be in jail for a while, you're going to go to prison and you're going to be there for a while. What and you're and you're an alcoholic, correct? Is that what? Yeah. How long did it take for you while you're in? Would you call that jail that time or would you call that prison at that point?
2: Well, my first year, I was just in county jails I was fighting uh-huh. a, a case, and then um, obviously at that point, in and out of court, that yeah, type of thing. In and out of court, but in jail. But I didn't want to. Uh, I definitely didn't want to drink ever again at that point. Um, but I didn't think I had a problem. I didn't think I was an addict. That didn't come until years down the line when I was in prison. Even though I hadn't had a drink, um, I didn't really subscribe to the thought of you know lifelong addiction, an addict. Um, but I knew that you know drinking and me didn't really mix well. But I really didn't accept that I was an addict until years down the line while I was incarcerated. Um, what happened? I guess uh, the right amount of pain and suffering for me just started to make a shift. You know, I went into 24, 25, 26, 27. I wasn't going anywhere. Endless appeals being denied. An opportunity at freedom again. Watching my kids grow up without me. Uh, family, you know, missing me. And I was just taken away. And I was in a place where I needed to be. and But I just didn't understand it. And so gradually, I just started peeling back the layers and looking like, you know, as, a, as these appeals began to uh, get denied from state and federal court, I started to say, you know what, maybe I need to be here. Maybe this is where I belong. Maybe I need to find out what exactly is going on with me and why I'm really here.
1: Okay. So let me get this straight. Or let me just, let me just, I don't know how to say this, so roll with me here. So you're in prison and you know you're not going to drink again.
2: I don't want to drink again.
1: You don't want to drink again. Did you did you accept that drinking got you into prison?
2: I believe at that point, in the beginning, the first year or two, I thought it was all the drinking. I felt like there had I been sober or not intoxicated, I wouldn't have did what I did. Um, But down the line, it seemed like you know what, it wasn't just the drinking. Drinking was a cumulative factor, but it definitely has more to deal with my personality, what was going on with me, the insecurities and a bunch of other stuff. So, yeah, it was easy for me at first to just blame the alcohol. I was drinking, it, it compromised my judgment. But uh, as a result of digging and pulling back the layers and looking at who I am and the principles that I had used to guide my life, I clearly realized that alcohol was just something I was running to, to get away from who I really was and what was really going on inside. Wow. So...
1: You're three years, give or take three years, when you start kind of peeling back that onion, so to say?
2: Yeah, man. I started losing all these appeals, and I wasn't going anywhere, and I was still stuck But what makes sale. you
1: go, like, I mean, I don't know. It seems like you could go a lot of different ways when you're in that position.
2: Sure.
1: You know, the last would be to look at yourself. You seem like you would be starting to cuss out a lot of other people besides yourself. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how does that, I mean... Is that a phone call from your mom like one day that's like, you know, John, you need to do – or is that a – and this is a question that I've never, ever, ever asked you. Where do you get into that point to – I mean because it's – to start really shining the mirror or the microscope or the magnifying glass into your soul – because that's really what it is, getting sober, is really turning yourself inside out to really look at where you're at and what's going on. And with all the drama that goes on inside of a prison, you know, I've never been to prison, but, I, you know, there's drama there,
2: you know. Oh, yeah. But it's Mars. It's life on Mars. Life on Mars.
1: Wow. That's a, that's a great title for a book. Yeah, it's life on Mars. What, where do you, what, what, how'd that go down
2: for yourself? Well, you know, while you're in well, during my incarceration, a lot of speakers come in. People come in. They share their different thoughts and ideas about things. And someone came in, and he, and Were I, Were these know,
1: voluntary things you go to voluntarily?
2: Yeah, yeah, you go to voluntary. You don't have to go, you know. Was this well, a
1: normal gig for you to do that?
2: Well, I mean, you're locked in a cell sometimes 10, 12 hours a day, so you want to get out the cell. And I'll be honest, there's times I just want to get out the cell, so I'll sign up to to go to. we uh, uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> exactly. So I, I heard something one time, and a guy, you know, he came in, and he had been in and, and got out and changed his life. And he said something. He says, you know what, the reason why you're in here is because of you. You know, and, and, and for some reason that's you know, there's a number of aha moments. There's moments in the visiting room where I'm looking at my kids and they're like, Come on daddy, let's go home and I can't. You know, there's that and that's my fault. I can't say the courts did this or the courts failed me here or I didn't have a private lawyer and blah blah blah. There's just some things that just you have to look in the mirror and say, This is your fault. You did this to yourself. And there was a guy, and so that message had been coming, and I had been rejecting it. But then there was this guy that came in, and he spoke, and he said, "You know, this is your fault. You need to take a look at you yourself." And then, when you're done with that, go and look for other people to blame. But start with you first. And I liked that. I was like, okay, because I already know who they else to blame. But that was part of it. And I started looking at me and the decisions I was making. Now, of course, I had the crack dad, and he went to Skid Row, and you know, I missed him at age 12. I didn't have my dad around, and all that. So there's tons of reasons I can say, well, I didn't have two parents, and you know, I grew up in a tough neighborhood, and I can say all these things, but those were going to be secondary. The first thing I wanted to do was look inside and see who I was and what was going on with me in the actions, and that's why I began to to realize that there was principles that I was living my life by. You say something to me crazy, I'm going to say something to you crazy or do something to you crazy. These are just principles that I just picked up and embraced for whatever reasons, and I had to
1: that identify. you picked
2: up, that you you weren't given them. You were you just picked them up. Yeah, they're part of your environment. They're part of just things you see in your 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 family, your father. Yep. You live these. You know, you, you. I came. CBT is great. We had CBT uh, therapy in prison, and it helped us identify you know some of the things that goes on in our mind, that results in an action. So we have these thoughts, and then we have these feelings, and then we have these reactions. So we were able to back up and look at the thoughts that were developed these angry feelings, and these thoughts were things like that were deriving from principles that drive us. And so once we started looking at, wow, that's why I'm here, because I've been living by this principle. The principle is you do something to me, I do something to you. That's a principle. So I had to change that principle. You do something to me, I be assertive. Hey, man, I appreciate it if you don't do that. And it's totally man to do that, but growing up as a kid... And in jail in prison that's not something that you you don't say that to people if someone does something you do something back to them so these are the things that keep getting us you know in situations that where we don't want to be and we have to take a look at those things so that's where i started i wanted to know what are the principles that are driving my life that, that are keeping me inside here and i also believe because i have a high spiritual connection with god i believe in god i believe there's only one powerful almighty all-knowing god and i cried out to him i prayed to him i said hey Help me get out of here or help me understand what I need to do before I get out of here. And uh, with a strong praying mom and and just constant cries and in my pillow and cells late night when no one was looking. And I believe he heard me and he showed me you are the problem. You got to start looking at you. Wow. So,
1: wow, how do you. So you're in prison. How do you how do you. I don't know how to say this, but how do you how do you make that change when you're in prison? I would think that other people in there, other uh, other prisoners would look upon that as weakness. Would they at all? I mean, maybe I'm crazy to talk as I say that, you know, you're changing. You come in there, you kind of have to have your chest puffed up a little bit. Is that how you went in?
2: Yo, yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, I was definitely um, of the mindset of when I initially went in. I still had the mindset you do something to me, I'll do something to you. Yeah. Like, you have to have that in there. But at the same time, I really felt bad for why I was in there. And I really wanted to get out. And I didn't want to keep doing things in there that would help me stay there longer. I wanted to get back out and see my kids and, and, and that type of thing. But there are guys that say stuff like that. You know, I was an athlete. So that kind of helped me a lot in there. I played sports, I played football, and I played rough sports. And I played like, basketball in prison, it's totally different from basketball in the NBA. Like, we're catching elbows and we're giving, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, and there was a couple of quarrels and squabbles here and there. And, you know, but you gain respect just by being an honest person. I didn't run debts. I didn't borrow drugs and do all that stuff and everything I said and who I represented myself as. You stayed straight stay, in I'd prison. Straight. And guys respect that. Guys respect a guy who's coming in and saying, "Hey, I'm not from a gang. I made a mistake. I'm here to figure it out and I want to get out." And leave me alone, you know. And I'm not in your business, and you know, guys are doing that. They respect that. They respect that, you know. And you keep your nose clean and you just do your thing. And I didn't hang out in the yard and just play. I was in the law library or I was on the basketball court or I was working out or I was in the church, you know, listening to different ideas. I went to Muslim church, I went to Christian church, I went to Jewish chapel. I went to everything cuz so I wanted to know what is the right way? What is the one way? Can I pull from different beliefs? Beliefs and phase to get to where I need to get. Well, you
1: it. were were you a religious guy before you went in? I mean, you you went in young. How old were you? Twenty four. So, you were raised. Your you, your mother's a good Christian woman,
2: correct? Yes, strong. Yeah,
1: a <laughs> good <laughs> Christian. Would be an understatement, oh, yeah. probably. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, you were raised to be that way, correct? Christian, correct. When when did you kind of? put That on the back burner, or what, or, or when did you even take it
2: totally off the stove? That's a great question. Yeah, well, you know, growing up, we had to go to church, we had to go to church. She it's just what go. you did on Sunday, mom. No, we went Sunday, we went to choir practice Tuesday night, we went to Bible study Friday night, we went to <laughs> young men's fellowship on Wednesday night. We had to go more than we really wanted to go. Um, so when I got out of my mom's house, did you resent it? Of course. When I got out of my mom's house, the last thing I wanted to do was go to church. It was just too much church. So I started partying, drinking, hanging out, and I did everything but go to church. And uh, I kind of got away from those fundamental spiritual beliefs. Did you stop
1: believing in God then or just stop going to church?
2: I just stopped going to church. I always believed in God. I always felt that when times got hard, I'd be able to reach out and talk to God. Did you ever think
1: that God uh, dealt you a bad hand?
2: No, no, no. never. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I did think that in the beginning. But later on, I realized that that wasn't the case. But I did feel like, hey, God, I'm a good kid. You know, I went I went to high school. I graduated. You know, I had a tough you know childhood upbringing. Uh, I went to some college. I got a job. I got a wife. I got a lady pregnant. I took care of her. And then I ended up in prison. God, why, 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 why me? Like, why, why did this happen to me? And I believe down the line, it was his way of showing me he loved me. He could have left me out in the streets drinking, and I probably would have just jumped in my car one night and killed myself. But because he loved me, he cared about me, and he heard what I my, my my cry out to him, he allowed what he felt was the best thing for me: long-term incarceration. And uh, and honestly, it worked. Like, that's what I needed at that time in my life. I wish I can say I didn't need that, and I could have. wish I could say I raised my kids, but that wasn't the case. I needed, God knew what I needed, and it was long-term incarceration because I was stubborn, I was hard-headed, and if I would have just did two or three years in prison, I would have got back out and thought, oh, everything was fine, that wasn't that bad. You think so? I would have went right back to drinking, right back to some tough stuff, yeah, because I would, nothing had really had changed. I was in so three hard-headed. years, nothing had changed? Not for me. Some, some things, not enough for me to change as a yeah, individual. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. But yeah, there was some, you know, others. Yeah little
1: things but not the big movement the to really
2: sway term. the whole pendulum over. Yeah, I wouldn't be sitting here right now with 20 years sober had I only did 3 or 4 years in prison. Just me. Other people they could do 2 weeks in jail and they're good. I don't know. I think uh some of That's us have huge, some of us You've
1: never said that to me before.
2: Some of us have a higher tolerance for pain. <laughs> that was me. So the 7 years of And this is your thick head. Yeah, god knew. God Does your thick
1: knew. head still get in the way of way of things now?
2: Not not as it did Are you back sure? then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm very humble, you know, you can come talk to me if I make, you know, I'm like totally receptive and humble uh, now and I, you know, I care about people, I care about what people have to say And, um, and I'm always looking for opportunities to see what's motivating me for any particular thing. But yeah, and I think too nowadays, man, I think that's what some of our addicts need. I think some of our addicts need lockup. We talked about, you know, part of the title of this show is outside the box ideas. Well, you know, all I can say is what worked for me. when I see people in and out of treatment, in and out of treatment, the next thing they need, they need they need to be they need a lockdown. And I don't know if, if that lines up with insurance and rights and the constitution and it probably doesn't, but that's what some people need. They need to be locked up somewhere where they can get a hold of drugs and then they can try to look at and peel back the layers. Of you private. had opportunities to do drugs and drink in prison, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. sure. Did. Totally. Everything's there. Yeah, There's drink. People manufacture wine. They bring in drugs. They smuggle in everything. Everything's under their sun. Why I didn't want it? Because I know that if you continue to do things, I was going to stay there. I never had a parole date until the last six months of my 17-year uh, incarceration. I didn't know when I was ever going to go home. So for me to pick up a drink or do something would only have meant I'm going to stay here longer. And I didn't want to stay there longer.
1: 17 years.
2: 17 years, man. 17 years. Exactly. Not in and out. One long (laughs) stretch of 17 years. A lot happens in 17 years, man. And I will say there's a lot of good people. A lot of people change. A lot of my friends that got out after 20 years and 25 years and 30 years are doing great. They're doing great. They're not going back to alcohol and drugs. Um, They're living healthy lives. They're working. And uh, some of them don't go to like meetings and AA and all that stuff. They already know the pain and suffering of seventeen, twenty, thirty years was enough for them, and they're just living happy, free, you know, lives. We're talking with
1: um, one of my favorite people on the planet, John. <laughs> and your story, John, is just so inspirational to me. What you've been through, I just love it. Thank you. Um, we're going to take a quick commercial and get back with you. I want to talk about, you know, some of these clients we deal with, some of the patients we deal with out there that you know need that kind of conk on the head so to say you had that conk on the head and you weren't straight after three years nope you needed the 17
2: unfortunately
1: man let's get into that i want to know your thoughts on how we help these kids out um and i want to run a couple statistics by you when we get back and see what your thoughts are you're one of the smartest guys i know cool um anyway thanks for joining us everybody uh we'll be right back
3: We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
0: Getting sober isn't just about not drinking and not doing drugs. It's a way of life. At Rebos, we have a team of talented professionals, each with their own clear and distinct message to walk clients from the darkest point in their lives out into the light. Rebos offers a carefully curated selection of groups and workshops in addition to a minimum of six individual sessions per week. At Rebos, we believe there are no cookie-cutter clients, and we meet every individual where they are at today. It's not a Rebos program. It's your program. Our team wants to help as many people as possible become who they want to be. And if you don't know who you want to be, we'll help you. Visit RebosTreatment.com to learn more about the Rebos Treatment Center. That's RebosTreatment.com.
3: Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
0: You are listening to The Power to Create Yourself with the Ross Rameen. To find out more about Ross and the program, Visit the Rebo's Treatment Center website at rebostreatment.com. Now, back to the power to create yourself.
1: Hey, welcome back to the show. Um, it's funny every time I hear that opening, the power to create yourself of who you want to be. And John, it sounds like you you did that. It's and it, And I think you did it by as we just kind of said in our last segment is you got knocked on the head. I mean, you had to do 17 years and after three years, you could honestly say it's like, I would have gone back to being a knucklehead. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. And you had the power to create in that crazy ass environment that you were in to create who you wanted to be. And I watch people that come into a beautiful place like what we have here. It's just, it's a big, it's open, it's airy nice paintings on the wall I mean it's like it's a place to like I mean it's a healing place it's a a place to create who you want to be it's this and that and you had so little in the sense compared to what we offer here to get what you wanted which is peace and I guess it's self self motivation to be somebody that you don't want to be what this knock on the head that you had to give yourself or that the system gave you I mean, I think that's really what it was.
2: Yeah, I've heard it said the best is, uh, you know, God will do for you what you can't do for yourself. So when you say the courts, you know, kind of came in there and gave me more time than I felt I needed. um, That was God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself.
1: I talked to a guy yesterday. He's in Chicago right now, and he is literally, I mean— he literally can't find his way out of a wet paper bag. I mean, this guy <laughs> with a hole at the bottom of it. I mean, he's a mess. And I literally sent him a text. I said, you got to start making choices for yourself before somebody does them for you. And I don't know what's better. I mean, I guess it's always nice for a sense of pride that you could do it for yourself. But I couldn't do it for myself. I, my you're brother had way. to come and basically put an imaginary gun to my head. It's like, you're doing this. Otherwise, forget about it. And you had to have a judge do it to you. Yep. And constantly been denied appeals and paroles and whatever exactly. it had to be. Exactly. And I, this other kid, I'm like, maybe he needs this. Yeah. And he went to prison for one year. He went to prison for one year. In the same place Al Capone went to prison. <laughs> like, it's a really old, gnarly-ass place back yeah. in Illinois. And what is this, you know, I'm seeing... I got, oh, I got drug addiction right now that's killing anywhere from upwards of 300 people per day. They're thinking right now, conservatively, that 90 people die a day just from opiates. And that's conservative because half the time they don't know, you know... Because an opiate addiction can lead to other things, believe it or not, pneumonia. <laughs> and, and people die of pneumonia all the time. So are they actually dying of pneumonia or are they dying, dying of the opiates? You know, what came first and what's going to get the blame for it? What do, you, what do you think we can do, you know, you and me, two professionals in this industry, to make this knock on the head that people kind of need? You know, last week I had to discharge a client last week and it really ripped me up because I got a little heated. I did. This kid was given every single like opportunity and it's like, now he's just like, he's giving me kind of like the imaginary finger every single time I talk and it's like, dude, I'm trying to like help you out here, man. You called me. <laughs> you know, it's, I literally, I think your job and my job, we're like firemen. We watch people <laughs> that are on fire all day right? and we walk around with like a fire extinguisher and we have to ask, even though they've come to our fire department. Asked to be put out the flames. And some of them are like, yeah, just put out one leg. Don't put out the whole thing.
2: You right. know? <laughs>
1: what do we got to do, do you think, to make this
2: better? You know, everyone has a different tolerance for pain. You know, the guy that does one year and risen and gets out and comes back to his, you know, maybe it wasn't enough. I don't know if he needs 17 years. I don't know if he needs 20, 30 years. It's just everyone's different. But I think for repeat, uh you know addicts people that keep relapsing over and over in and out of treatment they need to time out they need the conch on their head they need to be like in some type of lockdown facility um They they just need a strong timeout where there's no drugs and no matter what happens or what they're feeling, and even if they change their mind and they want to come out, they can't. Like they would come in and sign off on like six months of incarceration, but you're not actually in a prison, but you're in a lockdown facility with staff, and we're gonna teach you some stuff. We're not just gonna be mean to you. We're gonna teach you self care, self love, maybe a trade while you're in there. And I mean, in in, in insurance, I mean they might as well pay for that since they're paying for all this other treatment, you know, in and out, you know, over and over again. So the con the head, I think, in accumulation with some therapy and some CBT and some love and care and yoga, whatever you want to mix in there with it, the conk on the head, a timeout, a sit down, a lockdown facility, even if it's an inpatient, but it's got to be, you can leave and you will do these things this way and that's it for six months. And once they sign on to that, we guarantee you six months of sobriety and I guarantee you 80% of those people will probably not relapse. I think that's part of what's missing in, in treatment because some people just have a hard head and you know uh, you 30, had a hard head. So did I. Yeah, 30 days in inpatient's not going to do much for people like you and me with hard heads. We need I don't
1: think 30 days does anything for anybody. I mean, there is so much that has to be you know, like addressed re- addressed, recalibrated. I mean, people don't realize it's like I I always look at like you know, be getting sober It's just like weight loss to me. It's just not You can't just go lose 20 pounds, you know, go join a gym, lose 20 pounds in a month and eat well and just think it's fine. There are so many little tiny things that add up.
2: Behaviors.
1: Yeah, that you have to undo. Exactly. I mean, it's a freight train that literally has to stop. So you you were 24 and so it's a 24, 24 year old long freight train that was just busting a move down the tracks. And it comes to a stop. Your stop kind of happened pretty abruptly. And so there's a little bit of a pile up, but you know, you gotta straighten that stuff out and then and then you gotta get the conductor at the one end, it's gotta literally walk 24 years, so to say, down to the other end mm-hmm. to start, you know, you know, to start driving the train the other direction and go find that track that they missed right. that was the right track to be on. Totally. And, you know, most people they don't have to clean up. The, the cars because you stopped pretty abruptly um i stopped pretty abruptly but i also had you know the brakes were being put on for about 12 years you know just kind of get worse and more kind of gangly and gnarly looking sure. um so what do you think when you're watching people that come in here um into other treatment i mean because you've only worked at this treatment center but what do you what do you think are like the three biggest things that help people? I yeah. know God's one of them for
2: you. Totally. Uh, three biggest things, spirituality. Well, I also worked um, as a drug and alcohol counselor, a peer mentor, drug and alcohol counselor in prison. So that's, that's right. Where, you did. Yeah. So that was like the beginning. You they got had this, certified as one. Right. There's this. In bro- prison. Totally. KDAC actually has a program where uh, before it was CCAP, it's, it was KDAC, and they came into the institution. They have SAP programs for people and guys, you know, inmates that have uh, drug related crimes. So they're required to go to SAP, substance abuse programs, while in prison. And so KDAC had a great idea and they said, well, why don't we train some of these inmates, you know, to be peer inmate counselors and take them through, you know, pharmacology and counseling one on one and have them take a state exam and then ship them off to other prisons to actually provide you know, treatment alongside with a provider that's came inside. So that's what I did. You know, I was selected, you know, out of thousands of uh, other inmates and, and, and given the opportunity to go. How many through, years were you in before you started? 13 that? years. I was way no down. So by then I was, I was ready for something like that. By then I had subscribed. I am an alcoholic. I can't, I can't, I, I watched this video that said, uh, talked about, you know, when, when the transition for me to accept that I was an alcoholic is, uh, I watched a video inside and it said, you know, you can, it, something along the lines about brain pathways. And it said, you can, you cannot not drink, you can have a problem drinking. Then you cannot drink for many, many years, but there's brain pathways that are creating your head. And those are always going to be there. So you get out and you start drinking again. It's just going to light those pathways right back up and you're going to go right back to drinking. just habit thinking. Yeah, it's just a matter of time. So that scared me. I was like, wait a minute, there's a chance that I can get out here and drink again. And, 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 and the person also told me, you know, what? it's not your fault. Your brain's wired in a way where it wants more and more and more. You didn't wire your brain. You just happen to have a type of brain that's wired in a way where it wants more and more. Because I didn't understand. like Why can't I have just one drink like some of these other people? Why do I have to have more and more and more and more? Why do I have to look at other people's drink? Why do I got to drink before I get there and go to the bathroom and kill a drink? I didn't understand that. And, so it uh,
1: wasn't your fault that your head was wired that way.
2: Right. But, but it was my responsibility now to, to, learn to have how to that dr- knowledge. To learn now, how to drive yourself. Now that I had the knowledge that my brain's wired in a certain way, I accepted it. And then I knew now it's my responsibility to never pick up the first drink. So that part was my responsibility. And that's where, you know, uh, it you think a lot, A lot of
1: people get stuck
2: there. Yeah.
1: Because they're like, I got dealt a bad hand. Like, why can't I drink like, you know, my friend little Johnny over here or Susie Q or whoever it is. But I mean, and they keep why is my head
2: like done like this? Yeah, and I wrestled with that for years and years. Still not drinking inside, but I wrestled for that for years and years. And I wanted to prove. I actually had the thought, you know, when I get out of here, I'm going to prove. I, I mean, there was times where I wanted to be not in jail, but I thought I'm going to prove that when, when I when you get, get out, out of here, here I'm going to have a nice cold drink, one. Yeah, I can drink casually, and nothing's going to happen. That was maybe maybe four years, three, four years in, still like, eh, hey, not too sure about this. Did plan. you know when you were three fours in that you would be in there as long as you were No, no, because I had a, every every I kept filing appeals over and over and I thought this appeal's gonna work, this appeal's gonna work. And there's God in the back of my ear, like, ha-ha, just kind of chuckling, like, yeah, go ahead, keep filing your appeals. And I kept filing appeals and like this one's gotta work. This because I mean there was some things shared by my jurors that really didn't feel like I got a fair shake, and I was appealing these things, but for whatever reasons, there was a higher power working, you know, regardless of I had a strong appeal. There was a higher power working. So, um, I, you know,
1: that's wow. I mean, just to stay after it, you just sat in the law library and just got after it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, just filing endless appeals I mean I would have I would work on an appeal for like four or five six months shepherdizing and researching and putting together this writ of habeas. were you work working with an attorney or just doing it in yourself? some cases most of the time it was myself I would write innocent projects and I would write you know other lawyers and firms and the you know NAACP and all these other places and they'd give me bits and pieces or shoot me a case or something but I really didn't have money uh, for a lawyer my mom came up with some money for a lawyer down the line and he really didn't do anything for our appeals because there was a higher power working you know, there was some God was like, no, you going to do all this time and, 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 and something's going to happen for you. Yeah. And it's like, you wow. don't see these things in the moment. See, that's you got why. You're talking about trust
1: to the guy upstairs.
2: Exactly. Holy yeah. smokes, John. Yeah. And that's why, you know, what you share, we share here at Rebos is like, we tell you, you don't know what you need. You know you need something. That's why you walked in the door. But after that, let us guide and steer your life. Let us put the fires out because you don't know what you need. You think you know, but you really don't know. Your life. Wow. Your life could have been worse. <laughs> I deleted that way. I thought it was worse, as bad as it could get. No yeah, but could Think have about worse.
1: it. I mean, if so, if you believe in the guy upstairs as much as you say you do, which I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident that you do. Really? I, I know you pretty well. If you were out on the street, who knows what would have happened to you? No. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I get being in prison is not a good idea, and it's not a pretty place, and it's pretty jacked up. Yeah, to do stuff on a daily basis, you just don't do, but I mean, think about it in the sense it's like if he's making you be in there, I can think of two things number one, you would probably die on the outside. I mean, I mean, if he's if you believe in I mean, him, he's really like, This is why you need to be there, and that's why those peers are done. Obviously, it's like this is the safest place for you, yeah, and number two, like. I mean, you've got it. I I mean, I see your potential since you and I have known each other. It's just through the roof. I mean, I've never seen a classier dude than you. (laughs) Thank you. I mean, and I I really mean that. But what has this world got for
2: you? You know, I don't know. God showed (laughs) me a lot while I was inside. And there was a point after endless appeals and parole board denials, I kind of thought maybe God wants me to be here. Because, you know, God doesn't really in my idea, in my eyes, God doesn't care whether you're locked up or why you're in the free world. He doesn't really care. All he cares about is what you're doing for mankind, for humans. And while I was in there, I'm at some point after 13 years, I started helping people. I mean, I was a tutor and I was helping people with G and college and stuff like that. But when I became a counselor inside and I started working with substance abuse, that's when I really started caring about people. And I started helping people. And I thought, you know what, maybe God wants me to live the rest of my days in here. I mean, I was almost embracing and accepting the fact that maybe I'll just live the rest of my life in prison and dying here and I'll help as many people as I can, because what I really wanted to do was care. I cared about public safety. I cared about people and, and my mom and people in the free world and being safe. And I knew a lot of those guys that were in there that I weren't doing a lot of time. They were going to get back out and go into our society. So I wanted to help them as much as possible so that when they got back out, our world could be a little bit safer. That's and amazing. So,
1: so- this, this is such an amazing thing because you really, like, talking about just, like, embracing your environment to the utmost level. Surrender. Just, yeah. Surrender. Accept whatever adjective you want to use for it. But you're like, you know what? I don't know. You, you didn't know if you're getting out in a year or
2: 100 years. When I did that, that's when I started my journey to get out of prison. And I would say it was about maybe... 12, 10, 11, 12, 13 years in when I fully surrendered and said, you know what? Whatever happens, happens. If this is where I'm supposed to be. You're going to be be the most efficient person you
1: can be in this environment, no matter
2: what. I'm going to just be good and I'm going to be good in here. And if that means the higher God has for me to stay in here, I'm going to stay in here. No, despite not wanting to. And when I fully surrendered, that's when the journey began for me to transition out of there when i just you know what when and that's what we share here with clients you got to give it up you got to surrender to get it you got to give it all up to get it all back and when i the faster once i got that through my thick head then that's when my freedom and things were given back to me wow yeah just like and that. And it took humility and it took just beating that ego down because in my mind, I was like, I'm smart. I'm going to figure out this law. I'm going to file this, this this appeal in court and I'm going to win this. And I was helping other guys. I filed appeals for other guys and I was getting them time knocked off and time serving new trials. And it's like, why can't I do this for myself while well, I was fighting a greater power? But that ego kept telling me, file another appeal, file this case, argue it this way, do it that way. And um, And that's what needed to be worked on, the ego. I needed humility. I needed, I needed to be really shrink and downsized and realize that, you know what? I'm not that bright, bright I'm not as bright as I think I am, because when I think I know, which isn't a bad thing. Right. Right. <laughs> which right. isn't a bad thing. So total surrender and humility, coupled with the right amount of pain and suffering and just a great accumulation of factors to uh, help me transcend
1: <clears throat> Wow,
2: yeah. And, and you know what? It's great, too, what you talk about. What we do here is, you know, the power to create yourself. And I think that's what's missing for a lot of clients and just treatment in general. They're not recreating themselves. They're coming here and they're staying sober for a couple of weeks here and there, but they're not changing the behaviors and the attitudes and they're playing on their phones and they're still talking to the same people.
1: It's emotional sobriety. Yeah. Let's talk about that more. Let's, sure. let's take a quick break and let's talk about emotional sobriety because it hit you at 10 years. The sobriety. That's what it was. You had the physical aspect, but you didn't have the emotional game.
2: Right. Well
1: said. Guys, we're talking with John, um, who is, he did 17 years in prison, totally transformed his life, rebuilt it. You can literally have every, you're walking, talking proof that you can every single thing taken away from you and totally land on top.
2: Yeah, (laughs) exactly.
1: Yeah. It's unbelievable it's unbelievable we'll be right back after this quick break and we're going to start talking about a little bit about emotional sobriety and i really want to hear more about your insight on that Um, we'll be right back guys thanks so much
3: We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live, wherever you go, on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
0: Getting sober isn't just about not drinking and not doing drugs. It's a way of life. At Rebos, we have a team of talented professionals, each with their own clear and distinct message to walk clients from the darkest point in their lives out into the light. Rebos offers a carefully curated selection of groups and workshops in addition to a minimum of six individual sessions per week. At Rebos, we believe there are no cookie-cutter clients, and we meet every individual where they are at today. It's not a Rebos program. It's your program. Our team wants to help as many people as possible become who they want to be. And if you don't know who you want to be, we'll help you. Visit rebostreatment.com to learn more about the Rebos Treatment Center. That's R-E-B-O-S Treatment.com.
3: Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
0: You are listening to The Power to Create Yourself with Ross Rameen. To find out more about Ross and the program, Visit the Rebos Treatment Center website at Rebostreatment.com. Now, back to the power to create yourself.
1: Hey, hey, welcome back to the show. Um, thanks for joining us. Yeah, if you have any questions about our program, you can always go on to Treatment.com. You can go onto our website. Check out our blogs. We have a variety of eBooks on all different subjects. Um, it's pretty extensive. Um, everything, what it's like to go back to college, um, summer breaks, moms, uh, moms and addictions, dads and addictions, pills, alcohol, you name it. All sorts of great, great information um, on there. Um, also, if you've missed any of this amazing show with John, you can go on to um, iTunes and find us there and listen to it after uh, after it gets uploaded onto that. In any of our past shows, we've been going doing this since um, almost August, um, so quite quite some time now for us, and we're having um, a great experience. And John, I can't thank you enough for being with us today. Your story is just second to none. I mean, it really <clears throat> is. I see more people complaining about the cards that are dealt to them and it's just like give me a break after <laughs> yeah. you have you see a guy like you and what you have been through and just the class that you I mean when you interviewed with us I mean that was what four years ago
2: yeah Christmas would be four years this Christmas would be
1: four years so it's been three and changed now yeah mm-hmm. really yeah yep so you came into us and how long you been out
2: maybe six months <laughs> yeah i think about six months yeah
1: life has changed totally 17 years
2: internet technology none of that was what it was what anymore. freaked you out the most to a lot more people there's way more people in traffic than it was back then really yeah there was just people everywhere in traffic trains uh yeah la had come a long way but i think yeah just technology and Phones, yeah, yeah. Cell phones. The way people communicate was way different when I got out than it was when I left. It's going to be a little intimidating, overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. It took me a while to get on the computer and understand like emails and you know some of the software and things like that. But uh, it was also fun. It was also like wow, cool. I want to learn all this stuff and get caught up. But yeah, it took a little while, and it was a little frustrating. And then finding a job, you know, with you know, 17 year employment gap was kind of hard finding a job. But yeah, you guys took me in. It was a no brainer
1: for me. It really was. Mm-hmm. It was a total no-brainer. Right. I don't know why, what that was, but when you walked in and I read your resume and you were so honest about where you've been, what you're doing, and but just the level of class you said it with, and you talked about it with was just. Um, I don't think I did your first. I don't think I did your first interview. Oh, Cameron. Cameron did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I don't think I did, and I just remember coming in. And he's like, "You got to go talk to this dude." I was like, all right, let's do it. And then he Mm -hmm. came back in, didn't you? Yeah. And I was just like, and I remember talking to my partner. He's like, you're going to hire that dude. And I'm like, all right. I I don't, I mean, it's like, there's nothing wrong. And it was the best, I mean, arguably one of the best hires I've ever done. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it was cool, too, because, I mean, I had a deck at the time, but you guys were like, hey, we'll give you a shot as a tech, and we'll go from there. And I was like, great. I was just happy to have a job and be yeah. working and paying taxes. Believe it or not. I You're was, a productive
1: human being.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was just the biggest thing for me, man. I think the
1: job was the least of your worries. Yeah. I think you were just happy to be a dad again.
2: Exactly. Be able to bring a check home and, you know, take care of my kids and, you know, as they were wrapping up high school and whatnot. Yeah.
1: Wow. So, Talking we before we went to break, we brought up emotional sobriety. And you know, for people that don't understand what emotional sobriety is, it's there's physical sobriety where you're physically not drinking, where you're physically not doing the drugs and but then there's emotional sobriety um there's always that term that people have heard of dry drunk that's where i mean i've seen i dated a girl she had like eight years of sobriety i'm like this girl is crazy (laughs) i'm like she ain't drinking but she is the most conniving blah 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 girl i'd ever met in my life person forget about girl person i'd ever met i was like i got eight months and i'm walking a straighter line than this chick is (laughs) um like what is up your experience after getting out you could have been like, you know, you know, <laughs> you could have been like a fat kid that just lost 40 pounds and just let loose into a candy store. You could have blown this so sideways if you wanted to. When you got out, you could have just, you know, kind of did your, you know, mind your piece of cues for a little bit. And then you could have gone, I mean, great. You could have, could have just totally gone out, but your emotional sobriety in that environment that you're in was were you in your last year, were you in like like kind of a bunk bed city or were you in an individual cell?
2: Yeah. So my last several years, I guess maybe five, six years, something like that, was dorm living. So yeah. there's like uh, twenty-four of us in one dorm. And mm-hmm. then there's probably two hundred of us in one building with a whole bunch of dorms. Yeah. So I'm in a building with 200 guys on a yard with a thousand guys, but in a dorm with 24 guys.
1: Yeah. So in that environment, you find your emotional sobriety. So when you got out, you could be as classy as you possibly could. And what do you, what, what is it for you? What is it for other people? What, what is this emotional sobriety? How do you, how do you wrap that up for yourself? Cause it's just not, you know, believe in God. That's, that's part of it. Sure. But I think it's, I don't think it is as much as, I mean, I think it's like, that's like an extra blessing. That's like, that's like extra. Yeah. What is For it? For
2: me, <clears throat> when I was doing the, the the training, the KDAC training inside with a group of uh, about, there was 50 of us going through this year and a half, almost two years of schooling and training before he took our state exam site. And we had, our group was called OMCP, Offender Mentor Certification Program. So the OMCP group, our motto was selfishness to servitude. Every morning we come in and we all chat. And before we start our studies for the day <clears throat> with whoever was coming in from KDAC to share and speak and instruct, you know, we would start off in our, our shout out and our sayings and our motto. And it was selfishness to servitude because selfishness is what got us in there. And it was servitude that was not just going to get us out, but keep us out. And that's where emotional sobriety started to grow. You don't just get emotional sobriety in one day. It's something that it starts to grow inside you and it just gets bigger in different degrees. So for me, the thought of selfishness to servitude, like I really had to break that down. You know, I had to deny myself and serve someone else. And by doing that, it gives me more and I get more out of it. So now when I get out, So you're sitting
1: in prison serving others.
2: That's what we did. I did anger management groups in there. I didn't get paid. You led them. I I volunteered and I took anger management courses myself. I wrote to outside entities. They sent me materials. I went through the materials. I'm talking like, you know, year-long educational anger management programs where someone on the out a counselor, therapist is reading what you have to say and writing you back and things like that. And when I completed that and graduated that, I said, wow, this was so tremendous for me to help me understand my anger. I want to give that to the other inmates. And I also I asked for more materials. They mailed me more books. And I just started having groups in, at, in the tables, in the day room, inside the prison, you know, besides my my, uh, my counseling KDAG thing at the SAP program. During the evenings, I would put out a sign up list. Guys would sign up, who wants this? Who wants to learn more about their anger? Yeah, I do, I do, I do, cool. And then we would sit at a table and we'll go over the materials and I will facilitate that. And that was for me, that was selfishness to serve it to. We got it I had to serve people because I did an injustice to society, I did an injustice to my family, so to balance that out, I had to do the best I can while I was in, and I continue to do that now. You know, here, yeah, I come here, I don't come here just for a paycheck, I come here to serve others, and I get the most out of that.
1: You do come here for a paycheck, but and I think that's fine, because I think your outside life, you serve.
2: Yeah. A lot. Absolutely. A lot. Yep, selfishness to servitude, man. It's the biggest thing all addicts need. You have to have servitude. You gotta get out there and get outside yourself and do something for someone else. Helps. yeah because a lot of addicts we deal with guilt we deal with shame we deal with guilt and the only way you can balance that out is by doing servitude go and and just balance that out and go and do 10 times better than the one thing you did wrong the one thing that you're feeling bad about if you robbed mom for 20 bucks or something and it's in the 20 years ago to get some crack well then go out there and give mom or go give someone you know 100 bucks or go give 20 people 20 bucks over the next several weeks or several months and just drowned out that shame by doing 10 times 20 times 30 times better do you sponsor people i sponsor a couple guys inside yeah yeah i got a couple guys that are still in there they're fighting for their freedom i'm cheering them on and i sponsor them, taking them through the steps um how do you well do that stuff. just well, letters I, yeah just back and forth correspondence mail correspondence i write them they write me i give them some feedback write them and then they write me back and we just continue to do that thing and while i was inside i had a sponsor a guy named phil kelsey casey was my sponsor how'd you um, meet him Through Sister Mary. Sister Mary, um, is, uh, she runs the, uh, San San, uh, Francisco Homes, um, and a prep program partner, she's through the Archdiocese of here in L.A., and so I was writing her, because I needed transitional housing, and I wrote them for a letter, like, hey, when I get out, like, they want me to go to transitional housing, I, need, I might need a place to stay, and so she was like, sure, we have a place to stay, and I was like, what about some other stuff, they have courses, they have a lot of good material, and now I asked her about what a What else do you offer, yeah? Yeah, I was like, hey, because I wanted to be successful when I got out, and I wanted to obtain as many as we You literally went could.
1: to another level. I mean... Granted, you got nothing but time in there, but just the way you wanted to turn yourself inside out and find out who you don't want to be.
2: Action steps. Action steps. You gotta take action steps. You just can't say these things. You gotta reach out and you gotta create opportunities where there aren't any. And I wrote Sister Mary and I told her I wanted this and this and this and I wanted a sponsor. She sent me Phil Casey. He started writing me and telling me different things and Oh, man, it was just great. Then when I got out, we hooked up and we went out to uh, meetings and stuff like that. And it was just it was just great support and everything. So and now I'm just I'm on the other end. I'm more Phil is now just, you know, servitude, man. Just helping people out, you know, talking to people.
1: And now you started your own
2: company. Yeah. Recovery Carpet Cleaning. Yeah. Recovery Carpet Cleaning. Just mm-hmm. recently started that Um, repos- upholstery and sofa cleaning. Uh, excuse me, upholstery and uh, carpet cleaning.
1: So you work here during the week, mm-hmm. and then on the weekends, maybe even at night, you do the side gig.
2: Yeah, primarily on the weekends, yeah. I go out and just got me a van last week, and uh, you know you can look me up, recoverycarpetcleaning.com. And um, I'm out there just doing a thing, man, doing another service, you know, doing another service.
1: So let me get this straight. You, you go to prison for, you didn't know how long. Correct. Turned out 17
2: years. <laughs> Correct. You've got... Family on the outside you weren't married at the time correct. I was married when I went in when I when my case took place in 96 I was married. Okay, and then she moved on and we got divorced and that was that
1: that was that and you're not married now I'm not married at the moment. Though. Okay, and you So you went in there didn't know what was up where you're going a um, Few years in you started, you know about three years in you decide that you know what I not only am I not wanting to drink anymore But I'm actually an alcoholic. Yeah, And then you realize that, you know, it's a good thing that you're in there and you trust God. Yeah. That, you know what, this is his path, this is his world, and I'm just doing the gig. And then you decide to become a chemical dependency counselor while you're in there because you're going to make the best decision or the best out of your life no matter where you're at. Yeah. Another classy move. (laughs) And then you get, you start teaching other people. Um, you know, doing groups, leading them through appeals, all this stuff, being of service while you're in prison doing this, staying out of trouble, never getting your head down low enough that you give up and you throw your arms up in the air, you get paroled. You could totally, totally spin out and celebrate, blow it, get pissed off at the system, whatever it is, but you don't. You hold your head up with a ton of class you and i meet each other <laughs> For, i find out that you got to meet this guy Ross i don't know what to do with him but there's something about this dude so which is not not uncommon about anybody i normally people do the first interview and then i get the second and the third interviews so no big deal and i saw you and i'm like this is a no brainer i asked my wife my wife's like he's nice you should have him um, <laughs> so and then i we do that and then you come in here you work your way up from you know from a minimum wage employee now you're Arguably one of the shot callers in a treatment center and arguably one of the largest treatment centers in Los Angeles. You just started your own company and you that you literally are your own company now.
2: Yeah. It's all the grace of God, man. You know, just opportunities are coming my way left and right. And I'm just, you know, I just have to look at my motivation. What am I doing? Is this for me or is this for others? And I believe this company is going to be able to help, you know, addicts in early recovery. You know, I can give them a side job, teach them a trade. And uh, it's a win-win situation. You're
1: one of the classiest dudes I've ever met.
2: Thanks, man. I can't know. I don't know about all that, but I really appreciate the You
1: work. are, man. Nobody does that with the class that you did that with. I mean, nobody does that it's unbelievable I, I mean you are literally a re you are literally the poster child that you can do whatever the hell you want to with this world stop complaining stop bitching stop moaning you think you got dealt a bad deck of cards <laughs> right look at yeah. what you had to do in the class that you did it with
2: yeah
1: and it's not like you just did it a little bit you've continued right I don't know. It's an honor to work with you, man.
2: Thank you. Really appreciate those. Moments.
1: I really. It's such an honor to work with you. I love your feedback. I love your two cents. You're a god. You really are. You're different, man. <laughs> I'm
2: not a god. You are. <laughs>
1: I'm driven. Amongst us, by you are. Guy. You're not bigger <laughs> than the guy upstairs, but amongst us, you walk to a different beat, dude. Hey, man. I appreciate you. Thanks for being on our show Thank today. Thank
2: you. It was awesome, man. Fabulous.
1: Thanks for coming, You're welcome. guys. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back again next week, next Tuesday, and. Um, Yeah, if you want to catch up more on the show that we just had with John, uh, please check us out on iTunes, um, and you can catch uh, this show and other shows. And if you want more um, information on Rebos, go to um, rebosetreatment.com. And we'll see you again next week. Thanks for joining us.
0: for joining us this week on The Power to Create Yourself. We hope to have you tune in again next Tuesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition with Ross Rameen on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have an enlightening week.